love of God. It has been stated above that the basis for our need to love lies in the experience of separateness and the resulting need to overcome the anxiety of separateness by the experience of union. The religious form of love, that which is called the love of God, is psychologically speaking not different. It springs from the need to overcome separateness and to achieve union. In fact, the love of God has as many different qualities and aspects as the love of man, and to a large extent, we find the same differences. In all theistic religions, whether they are polytheistic or monotheistic, God stands for the highest value, the most desirable good. Hence, the specific meaning of God depends on what is the most desirable good for a person. The understanding of the concept of God must therefore start with an analysis of the character structure of the person who worships God. The development of the human race, as far as we have any knowledge of it, can be characterized as the emergence of man from nature, from mother, from the bonds of blood and soil. In the beginning of human history, man, though thrown out of the original unity with nature, still clings to these primary bonds. He finds his security by going back or holding on to these primary bonds. He still feels identified with the world of animals and trees and tries to find unity by remaining one with the natural world. Many primitive religions bear witness to this stage of development. An animal is transformed into a totem. One wears animal masks in the most solemn religious acts or in war. One worships an animal as God. At a later stage of development, when human skill has developed to the point of artisan and artistic skill, when man is not dependent any more exclusively on the gifts of nature, the fruit he finds and the animal he kills, man transforms the product of his own hand into a god. This is the stage of the worship of idols made of clay, silver, or gold. Man projects his own powers and skills into the things he makes, and thus, in an alienated fashion, worships his prowess, his possessions. At a still later stage, man gives his gods the form of human beings. It seems that this can happen only when he has become still more aware of himself, and when he has discovered man as the highest and most dignified thing in the world. In this phase of anthropomorphic God-worship, we find a development in two dimensions. The one refers to the female or male nature of the gods, the other to the degree of maturity which man has achieved and which determines the nature of his gods and the nature of his love of them. Let us first speak of the development from mother-centered to father-centered religions. There can be little doubt that there was a matriarchal phase of religion preceding the patriarchal one, at least in many cultures. In the matriarchal phase, the highest being is the mother. She is the goddess. She is also the authority in family and society. In order to understand the essence of matriarchal religion, we have only to remember what has been said about the essence of motherly love. Since mother loves her children because they are her children and not because they are good, obedient, or fulfill her wishes and commands, mother's love is based on equality. All men are equal because they all are children of a mother, because they all are children of Mother Earth. 
The next stage of human evolution, the only one of which we have thorough knowledge and do not need to rely on inferences and reconstruction, is the patriarchal phase. In this phase, the mother is dethroned from her supreme position and the father becomes the supreme being, in religion as well as in society. The nature of fatherly love is that he makes demands, establishes principles and laws, and that his love for the son depends on the obedience of the latter to these demands. He likes best the son who is most like him, who is most obedient, and who is best fitted to become his successor as the inheritor of his possessions. As a consequence, patriarchal society is hierarchical. The equality of the brothers gives way to competition and mutual strife. Whether we think of the Indian, Egyptian, or Greek cultures, or of the Jewish, Christian, or Islamic religions, we are in the middle of a patriarchal world with its male gods over whom one chief god reigns, or where all gods have been eliminated with the exception of the one, the God. However, since the wish for mother's love cannot be eradicated from the hearts of man, it is not surprising that the figure of the loving mother could never be fully driven out from the pantheon. In the Jewish religion, the mother aspects of God are reintroduced, especially in the various currents of mysticism. In the Catholic religion, mother is symbolized by the church and by the virgin. Even in Protestantism, the figure of mother has not been entirely eradicated. I had to discuss this difference between the matriarchal and the patriarchal elements in religion in order to show that the character of the love of God depends on the respective weight of the matriarchal and the patriarchal aspects of religion. The patriarchal aspect makes me love God like a father. I assume he is just and strict, that he punishes and rewards, and eventually that he will elect me as his favorite son. In the matriarchal aspect of religion, I love God as an all-embracing mother. I have faith in her love that no matter whether I am poor and powerless, no matter whether I have sinned, she will love me. She will not prefer any other of her children to me. Whatever happens to me, she will rescue me, will save me, will forgive me. Needless to say, my love for God and God's love for me cannot be separated. If God is a father, he loves me like a son, and I love him like a father. If God is mother, her love and my love are determined by this fact. This difference between the motherly and the fatherly aspects of the love of God is, however, only one factor in determining the nature of this love. The other factor is the degree of maturity reached by the individual, hence in his concept of God and in his love. For God. Since the evolution of the human race shifted from a mother-centered to a father-centered structure of society, as well as of religion, we can trace the development of a maturing love mainly in the development of patriarchal religion. In the beginning of this development, we find a despotic, jealous God who considers man whom he created as his property and is entitled to do with him whatever he pleases. This is the phase of religion in which God drives man out of paradise, lest he eat from the tree of knowledge and thus could become God himself. This is the phase in which God decides to destroy the human race by the flood, because none of them pleases him, with the exception of the favorite son, Noah. 
This is the phase in which God demands from Abraham that he kill his only, his beloved son Isaac to prove his love for God by the act of ultimate obedience. But simultaneously, a new phase begins. God makes a covenant with Noah in which he promises never to destroy the human race again, a covenant by which he is bound himself. Not only is he bound by his promises, he is also bound by his own principle, that of justice. And on this basis, God must yield to Abraham's demand to spare Sodom if there are at least ten just men. But the development goes further than transforming God from the figure of a despotic tribal chief into a loving father, into a father who himself is bound by the principles which he has postulated. It goes in the direction of transforming God from the figure of a father into a symbol of his principles, those of justice, truth, and love. God is truth. God is justice. In this development, God ceases to be a person, a man, a father. He becomes the symbol of the principle of unity behind the manifoldness of phenomena, of the vision of the flower which will grow from the spiritual seed within man. God cannot have a name. A name always denotes a thing or a person, something finite. How can God have a name if he is not a person, not a thing? The prohibition to make any image of God, to pronounce his name in vain, eventually to pronounce his name at all, aims at the goal of freeing man from the idea that God is a father, that he is a person. In the subsequent theological development, the idea is carried further in the principle that one must not even give God any positive attribute. To say of God that he is wise, strong, good, implies again that he is a person. The most I can do is to say what God is not, to state negative attributes, to postulate that he is not limited, not unkind, not unjust. The more I know what God is not, the more knowledge I have of God. Following the maturing idea of monotheism in its further consequences can lead only to one conclusion, not to mention God's name at all not to speak about God. Then God becomes what he potentially is in monotheistic theology, the nameless one, an inexpressible stammer, referring to the unity underlying the phenomenal universe, the ground of all existence. God becomes truth, love, justice. God is I, inasmuch as I am human. The God of Abraham can be loved or feared as a father, sometimes his forgiveness, sometimes his anger being the dominant aspect. Inasmuch as God is the father, I am the child. I still claim that there must be a father who rescues me, who watches me, who punishes me, a father who likes me when I am obedient, who is flattered by my praise and angry because of my disobedience. Quite obviously, the majority of people have in their personal development not overcome this infantile stage, and hence the belief in God to most people is the belief in a helping father, a childish illusion. In spite of the fact that this concept of religion has been overcome by some of the great teachers of the human race and by a minority of men, it is still the dominant form of religion.
The truly religious person, if he follows the essence of the monotheistic idea, does not pray for anything, does not expect anything from God. He does not love God as a child loves his father or his mother. He has acquired the humility of sensing his limitations to the degree of knowing that he knows nothing about God. God becomes to him a symbol in which man, at an early stage of his evolution, has expressed the totality of that which man is striving for, the realm of the spiritual world of love, truth, and justice. He has faith in the principles which God represents. He thinks truth, lives love and justice, and considers all of his life only valuable inasmuch as it gives him the chance to arrive at an ever fuller unfolding of his human powers, as the only reality that matters, as the only object of ultimate concern. And eventually, he does not speak about God, nor even mention his name. To love God, if you were going to use the word, would mean then too long for the attainment of the full capacity to love, for the realization of that which God stands for in oneself. We can return now to an important parallel between the love for one's parents and the love for God. The child starts out by being attached to his mother as the ground of all being. He feels helpless and needs the all-enveloping love of mother. He then turns to father as the new center of his affections, fathering being a guiding principle for thought and action. In this stage, he is motivated by the need to acquire father's praise and to avoid his displeasure. In the stage of full maturity, he has freed himself from the person of mother and of father as protecting and commanding powers. He has established the motherly and fatherly principles in himself. He has become his own father and mother. He is father and mother. In the history of the human race, we see and can anticipate the same development. From the beginning of the love for God as the helpless attachment to a mother goddess, through the obedient attachment to a fatherly God, to a mature stage where God ceases to be an outside power, where man has incorporated the principles of love and justice into himself, where he has become one with God, and eventually to a point where he speaks of God only in a poetic, symbolic sense. From these considerations, it follows that the love for God cannot be separated from the love for one's parents. If a person does not emerge from incestuous attachment to mother, clan, nation, if he retains the childish dependence on a punishing and rewarding father or any other authority, he cannot develop a more mature love for God. Then his religion is that of the earlier phase of religion in which God was experienced as an all-protective mother or a punishing, rewarding father. One thing is certain. The nature of his love for God corresponds to the nature of his love for man. And furthermore, the real quality of his love for God and man often is unconscious, covered up and rationalized by a more mature thought of what his love is. Love for man, furthermore, while directly embedded in his relations to his family, is in the last analysis determined by the structure of the society in which he lives. If the social structure is one of submission to authority, 
overt authority or the anonymous authority of the market and public opinion, his concept of God must be infantile and far from the mature concept, the seeds of which are to be found in the history of monotheistic religion. Love and its disintegration in contemporary Western society. If love is a capacity of the mature, productive character, it follows that the capacity to love in an individual living in any given culture depends on the influence this culture has on the character of the average person. If we speak about love in contemporary Western culture, we mean to ask whether the social structure of Western civilization and the spirit resulting from it are conducive to the development of love. To raise the question is to answer it in the negative. No objective observer of our Western life can doubt that love, brotherly love, motherly love, and erotic love, is a relatively rare phenomenon, and that its place is taken by a number of forms of pseudo-love, which are in reality so many forms of the disintegration of love. Capitalistic society is based on the principle of political freedom on the one hand, and of the market as the regulator of all economic and social relations on the other. The commodity market determines the conditions under which commodities are exchanged. The labor market regulates the acquisition and sale of labor. Both useful things and useful human energy and skill are transformed into commodities which are exchanged without the use of force and without fraud under the conditions of the market. Shoes, useful and needed as they may be, have no economic value, exchange value, if there is no demand for them on the market. Human energy and skill are without exchange value if there is no demand for them under existing market conditions. The owner of capital can buy labor and command it to work for the profitable investment of his capital. The owner of labor must sell it to capitalists under the existing market conditions unless he is to starve. This economic structure is reflected in a hierarchy of values. Capital commands labor, amassed things, that which is dead, are of superior value to labor, to human powers, to that which is alive. This has been the basic structure of capitalism since its beginning. But while it is still characteristic of modern capitalism, a number of factors have changed which give contemporary capitalism its specific qualities and which have a profound influence on the character structure of modern man. As the result of the development of capitalism, we witness an ever-increasing process of centralization and concentration of capital. The large enterprises grow in size continuously. The smaller ones are squeezed out. The ownership of capital invested in these enterprises is more and more separated from the function of managing them. Hundreds of thousands of stockholders own the enterprise. A managerial bureaucracy which is well paid, but which does not own the enterprise, manages it. This bureaucracy is less interested in making maximum profits than in the expansion of the enterprise and in their own power. The increasing concentration of capital and the emergence of a powerful managerial bureaucracy are paralleled by the development of the labor movement. 
Through the unionization of labor, the individual worker does not have to bargain on the labor market by and for himself. He is united in big labor unions, also led by a powerful bureaucracy which represents him vis-a-vis -vis the industrial colossi. The initiative has been shifted, for better or worse, in the fields of capital as well as in those of labor, from the individual to the bureaucracy. An increasing number of people cease to be independent and become dependent on the managers of the great economic empires. Another decisive feature resulting from this concentration of capital and characteristic of modern capitalism lies in the specific way of the organization of work. Vastly centralized enterprises with a radical division of labor lead to an organization of work where the individual loses his individuality, where he becomes an expendable cog in the machine. The human problem of modern capitalism can be formulated in this way. Modern capitalism needs men who cooperate smoothly and in large numbers, who want to consume more and more, and whose tastes are standardized and can be easily influenced and anticipated. It needs men who feel free and independent, not subject to any authority or principle or conscience, yet willing to be commanded, to do what is expected of them, to fit into the social machine without friction who can be guided without force, led without leaders, prompted without aim, except the one to make good, to be on the move, to function, to go ahead. What is the outcome? Modern man is alienated from himself, from his fellow men, and from nature. He has been transformed into a commodity, experiences his life forces as an investment which must bring him the maximum profit obtainable under existing market conditions. Human relations are essentially those of alienated automatons, each basing his security on staying close to the herd and not being different in thought, feeling, or action. While everybody tries to be as close as possible to the rest, everybody remains utterly alone pervaded by the deep sense of insecurity, anxiety, and guilt which always results when human separateness cannot be overcome. Our civilization offers many palliatives which help people to be consciously unaware of this aloneness. First of all, the strict routine of bureaucratized mechanical work which helps people to remain unaware of their most fundamental human desires, of the longing for transcendence and unity. Inasmuch as the routine alone does not succeed in this, man overcomes his unconscious despair by the routine of amusement, the passive consumption of sounds and sights offered by the amusement industry. Furthermore, by the satisfaction of buying ever new things and soon exchanging them for others. Modern man is actually close to the picture Huxley describes in his brave new world, well-fed, well-clad, satisfied sexually, yet without self, without any except the most superficial contact with his fellow men, guided by the slogans which Huxley formulated so succinctly, such as, when the individual feels the community reels, or never put off till tomorrow the fun you can have today, or, as the crowning statement, everybody is happy nowadays. Man's happiness today consists in having fun. 
Having fun lies in the satisfaction of consuming and taking in commodities, sights, food, drinks, cigarettes, people, lectures, books, movies, all are consumed, swallowed. The world is one great object for our appetite. A big apple, a big bottle, a big breast. We are the sucklers, the eternally expectant ones. Our character is geared to exchange and to receive, to barter and to consume. Everything, spiritual as well as material objects, becomes an object of exchange and consumption. The situation, as far as love is concerned, corresponds, as it has to by necessity, to this social character of modern man. Automatons cannot love. They can exchange their personality packages and hope for a fair bargain. One of the most significant expressions of love, and especially of marriage with this alienated structure, is the idea of the teen. In any number of articles on happy marriage, the ideal described is that of the smoothly functioning teen. This description is not too different from the idea of a smoothly functioning employee. He should be reasonably independent, cooperative, tolerant, and at the same time, ambitious and aggressive. Thus, the marriage counselor tells us the husband should understand his wife and be helpful. He should comment favorably on her new dress and on a tasty dish. She, in turn, should understand when he comes home tired and disgruntled. She should listen attentively when he talks about his business troubles and should not be angry but understanding when he forgets her birthday. All this kind of relationship amounts to is the well-oiled relationship between two persons who remain strangers all their lives, who never arrive at a central relationship, but who treat each other with courtesy and who attempt to make each other feel better. In this concept of love and marriage, the main emphasis is on finding a refuge from an otherwise unbearable sense of aloneness. In, quote, love, end quote, one has found at last a haven from aloneness. One forms an alliance of two against the world, and this egoism a deux is mistaken for love and intimacy. The emphasis on team spirit, mutual tolerance, and so forth is a relatively recent development. It was preceded in the years after the First World War by a concept of love in which mutual sexual satisfaction was supposed to be the basis for satisfactory love relations, and especially for a happy marriage. It was believed that the reasons for the frequent unhappiness in marriage were to be found in that the marriage partners had not made a correct sexual adjustment. The reason for this fault was seen in the ignorance regarding correct sexual behavior, hence in the faulty sexual technique of one or both partners. In order to cure this fault and to help the unfortunate couples who could not love each other, many books gave instructions and counsel concerning the correct sexual behavior and promised implicitly or explicitly that happiness and love would follow. The underlying idea was that love is the child of sexual pleasure, and that if two people learn how to satisfy each other sexually, they will love each other. 
It fitted the general illusion of the time to assume that using the right techniques is the solution not only to technical problems of industrial production, but of all human problems as well. One ignored the fact that the contrary of the underlying assumption is true. Love is not the result of adequate sexual satisfaction, but sexual happiness, even the knowledge of the so-called sexual technique, is the result of love. If, aside from everyday observation, this thesis needed to be proved, such proof can be found in ample material of psychoanalytic data. The study of the most frequent sexual problems, frigidity in women, and the more or less severe forms of psychic impotence in men, shows that the cause does not lie in a lack of knowledge of the right technique, but in the inhibitions which make it impossible to love. Fear of or hatred for the other sex are at the bottom of those difficulties which prevent a person from giving himself completely, from acting spontaneously, from trusting the sexual partner in the immediacy and directness of physical closeness. If a sexually inhibited person can emerge from fear or hate and hence become capable of loving, his or her sexual problems are solved. If not, no amount of knowledge about sexual techniques will help. But while the data of psychoanalytic therapy point to the fallacy of the idea that knowledge of the correct sexual technique leads to sexual happiness and love, the underlying assumption that love is the concomitant of mutual sexual satisfaction was largely influenced by the theories of Freud. For Freud, love was basically a sexual phenomenon. The experience of brotherly love is, for Freud, an outcome of sexual desire, but with the sexual instinct being transformed into an impulse with an inhibited aim. As far as the feeling of fusion, of oneness, oceaning feeling, which is the essence of mystical experience and the root of the most intense sense of union with one other person or with one's fellow men is concerned, it was interpreted by Freud as a pathological phenomenon, as a regression to a state of an early limitless narcissism. It is only one step further that for Freud love is in itself an irrational phenomenon. The difference between irrational love and love as an expression of the mature personality does not exist for him. He pointed out in a paper on transference love that transference love is essentially not different from the normal phenomenon of love. Falling in love always verges on the abnormal, is always accompanied by blindness to reality, compulsiveness, and is a transference from love objects of childhood. Love as a rational phenomenon, as the crowning achievement of maturity, was, to Freud, no subject matter for investigation since it had no real existence. It is interesting to compare the concepts of Freud which correspond to the spirit of capitalism as it existed, yet unbroken around the beginning of this century, with the theoretical concepts of one of the most brilliant contemporary psychoanalysts, H.S. Sullivan. In Sullivan's psychoanalytic system, we find, in contrast to Freud's, a strict division between sexuality and love. In Sullivan's concept, the essence of love is seen in a situation of collaboration in which two people feel, quote, We play accordingly to the rules of the game to preserve our prestige and feeling of superiority and merit, end quote. 
Just as Freud's concept of love is a description of the experience of the patriarchal male in terms of 19th century capitalism, Sullivan's description refers to the experience of the alienated marketing personality of the 20th century. It is a description of an egotism a deux, of two people pooling their common interests and standing together against a hostile and alienated world. Love as mutual sexual satisfaction and love as teamwork and as a haven from aloneness are the two normal forms of the disintegration of love in modern Western society, the socially patterned pathology of love. There are many individualized forms of the pathology of love which result in conscious suffering and which are considered neurotic by psychiatrists and an increasing number of laymen alike. Some of the more frequent ones are briefly described in the following examples of neurotic love. 1. One or both of the lovers have remained attached to the figure of a parent and transfer the feelings, expectations, and fears one once had toward father or mother to the loved person in adult life. The persons involved have never emerged from a pattern of infantile relatedness and seek for this pattern in their effective demands in adult life. 2. Men who in their emotional development have remained stuck in an infantile attachment to mother. These men still feel like children. They want mother's protection, love, warmth, care, and admiration. They want mother's unconditional love, a love which is given for no reason than that they need it, that they are mother's child, that they are helpless. Such men frequently are quite affectionate, and charming if they try to induce a woman to love them, and even after they have succeeded in this. But their relationship to the woman, as in fact to all other people, remains superficial and irresponsible. Their aim is to be loved, not to love. There is usually a good deal of vanity in this type of man, more or less hidden grandiose ideas. If they have found the right woman, they feel secure, on top of the world, and can display a great deal of affection and charm, and this is the reason why these men are often so deceptive. But when, after a while, the woman does not continue to live up to their fantastic expectations, conflicts and resentments start to develop. If the woman is not always admiring them, if she makes claims for a life of her own, if she wants to be loved and protected herself, and in extreme cases, if she is not willing to condone his love affairs with other women, or even have an admiring interest in them, the man feels deeply hurt and disappointed, and usually rationalizes this feeling with the idea that the woman does not love him, is selfish, or is domineering. In a more severe form of pathology, the fixation to mother is deeper and more irrational. On this level, the wish is not, symbolically speaking, to return to mother's protecting arms, nor to her nourishing breast, but to her all-receiving and all-destroying womb. If the nature of sanity is to grow out of the womb into the world, the nature of severe mental disease is to be attracted by the womb, to be sucked back into it, and that is to be taken away from life. This kind of fixation usually occurs in relation to mothers who, in the name of love, sometimes of duty, want to keep the child, the adolescent, the man, within them. 
He should not be able to breathe but through them. Not be able to love except on a superficial sexual level, degrading all other women. He should not be able to be free and independent but an eternal cripple or a criminal. This aspect of mother, the destructive engulfing one, is the negative aspect of the mother figure. Mother can give life, and she can take life. She is the one to revive, and the one to destroy. She can do miracles of love, and nobody can hurt more than she. 3. A different form of neurotic pathology is to be found in cases where the main attachment is that to the father. A case in point is a man whose mother is cold and aloof, while his father, partly as a result of his wife's coldness, concentrates all his affection and interest on the son. He is a good father, but at the same time authoritarian. Whenever he is pleased with the son's conduct, he praises him, gives him presents, is affectionate. Whenever the son displeases him, he withdraws or scolds. The son, for whom the father's affection is the only one he has, becomes attached to father in a slavish way. His main aim in life is to please father, and when he succeeds, he feels happy, secure, and satisfied. But when he makes a mistake, fails, or does not succeed in pleasing father, he feels deflated, unloved, cast out. In later life, such a man will try to find a father figure to whom he attaches himself in a similar fashion. His whole life becomes a sequence of ups and downs, depending on whether he has succeeded in winning father's praise. Such men are often very successful in their social careers, but in their relationships to women, they remain aloof and distant. The woman is of no central significance to them. They usually have a slight contempt for her, often masked as the fatherly concern for a little girl. 4. More complicated is the kind of neurotic disturbance in love occurring when parents do not love each other, but are too restrained to quarrel or to indicate any signs of dissatisfaction outwardly. At the same time, remoteness makes them also unspontaneous in their relationship to their children. What a little girl experiences is an atmosphere of correctness, but one which never permits a close contact with either father or mother, and hence leaves the girl puzzled and afraid. 5. Idolatrous Love If a person has not reached the level where he has a sense of identity, of I-ness, he tends to idolize the loved person. He is alienated from his own powers and projects them into the loved person who is worshipped as the bearer of all love, all light, all bliss. In this process, he deprives himself of all sense of strength, loses himself in the loved one instead of finding himself. Since usually no person can in the long run live up to the expectations of her or his idolatrous worshiper, disappointment is bound to occur, and as a remedy, a new idol is sought for, sometimes in an unending circle. What is characteristic for this type of idolatrous love is, at the beginning, the intensity and suddenness of the love experience. This idolatrous love is often described as the true great love. But while it is meant to portray the intensity and depth of love, it only demonstrates the hunger and despair of the idolater. 
6. Another form of pseudo-love is what may be called sentimental love. Its essence lies in the fact that love is experienced only in fantasy and not in the here-and-now relationship to another person who is real. The most widespread form of this type of love is that to be found in the vicarious love satisfaction experienced by the consumer of screen pictures, magazine love stories, and love songs. All the unfulfilled desires for love, union, and closeness find their satisfaction in the consumption of these products. A man and a woman who in relation to their spouses are incapable of ever penetrating the wall of separateness are moved to tears when they participate in the happy or unhappy love story of the couple on the screen. For many couples, seeing these stories on the screen is the only occasion on which they experience love, not for each other, but together as spectators of other people's love. As long as love is a daydream, they can participate. As soon as it comes down to the reality of the relationship between two real people, they are frozen. 7. Still another form of neurotic love lies in the use of projective mechanisms for the purpose of avoiding one's own problems and being concerned with the defects and frailties of the loved person instead. Individuals behave in this respect very much as groups, nations, or religions do. They have a fine appreciation for even the minor shortcomings of the other person and go blissfully ahead ignoring their own, always busy trying to accuse or to reform the other person. If two people both do it, as is so often the case, the relationship of love becomes transformed into one of mutual projection. If I am domineering or indecisive or greedy, I accuse my partner of it. And depending on my character, I either want to cure him or to punish him. The other person does the same, and both thus succeed in ignoring their own problems and hence fail to undertake any steps which would help them in their own development. 8. Another form of projection is the projection of one's own problems on the children. When a person feels that he has not been able to make sense of his own life, he tries to make sense of it in terms of the life of his children. But one is bound to fail within oneself and for the children. The former, because the problem of existence can be solved by each one only for himself and not by proxy. The latter, because one lacks in the very qualities which one needs to guide the children in their own search for an answer. One other frequent error must be mentioned here. The illusion, namely, that love means necessarily the absence of conflict. Just as it is customary for people to believe that pain and sadness should be avoided under all circumstances, they believe that love means the absence of any conflict. The conflicts of most people are actually attempts to avoid the real conflicts. They are disagreements on minor or superficial matters which by their very nature do not lend themselves to clarification or solution. Real conflicts between two people, those which do not serve to cover up or to project, but which are experienced on the deep level of inner reality to which they belong, are not destructive. They lead to clarification. They produce a catharsis from which both persons emerge with more knowledge and more strength. 
Love is possible only if two persons communicate with each other from the center of their existence, hence if each one of them experiences himself from the center of his existence. Only in this central experience is human reality. Only here is aliveness. Only here is the basis for love. Love, experienced thus, is a constant challenge. It is not a resting place, but a moving, growing, working together. Even whether there is harmony or conflict, joy or sadness is secondary to the fundamental fact that two people experience themselves from the essence of their existence, that they are one with each other by being one with themselves rather than by fleeing from themselves. There is only one proof for the presence of love, the depth of the relationship and the aliveness and strength in each person concerned. This is the fruit by which love is recognized. Just as automatons cannot love each other, they cannot love God. The disintegration of the love of God has reached the same proportions as the disintegration of the love of man. Religion allies itself with autosuggestion and psychotherapy to help man in his business activities. Just as modern psychiatrists recommend happiness of the employee in order to be more appealing to the customers, some ministers recommend love of God in order to be more successful. Make God your partner means to make God a partner in business rather than to become one with him in love, justice, and truth. Just as brotherly love has been replaced by impersonal fairness, God has been transformed into a remote General Director of Universe Incorporated. You know that he is there. He runs the show, although it would probably run without him, too. You never see him, but you acknowledge his leadership while you are doing your part. Of love. Having dealt with the theoretical aspect of the art of loving, we are now confronted with a much more difficult problem, that of the practice of the art of loving. Can anything be learned about the practice of an art except by practicing it? The difficulty of the problem is enhanced by the fact that most people today expect to be given prescriptions of how to do it yourself, and that means in our case to be taught how to love. To love, however, is a personal experience which everyone can only have by and for himself. The steps toward the goal can be practiced only by oneself. Yet I believe that the discussion of the approaches may be helpful for the mastery of the art, for those at least who have freed themselves from expecting prescriptions. The practice of any art has certain general requirements. First of all, the practice of an art requires discipline. I shall never be good at anything if I do not do it in a disciplined way. Anything I do only if I am in the mood may be a nice or amusing hobby, but I shall never become a master in that art. But the problem is not only that of discipline in the practice of the particular art, but it is that of discipline in one's whole life. 
The fact is that modern man has exceedingly little self-discipline outside the sphere of work. When he does not work, he wants to be lazy, to slouch, or, to use a nicer word, to relax. This very wish for laziness is largely a reaction against the routinization of life. Just because man is forced for eight hours a day to spend his energy for purposes not his own, in ways not his own, but prescribed for him by the rhythm of the work, he rebels, and his rebelliousness takes the form of an infantile self-indulgence. In addition, in the battle against authoritarianism, he has become distrustful of all discipline, of that enforced by irrational authority, as well as of rational discipline imposed by himself. Without such discipline, however, life becomes shattered, chaotic, and lacks in concentration. That concentration is a necessary condition for the mastery of an art is hardly necessary to prove. Anyone who ever tried to learn an art knows this. Yet, even more than self-discipline, concentration is rare in our culture. On the contrary, our culture leads to an unconcentrated and diffused mode of life, hardly paralleled anywhere else. You do many things at once. You read, listen to the radio, talk, smoke, eat, drink. You are the consumer with the open mouth, eager and ready to swallow everything. This lack of concentration is clearly shown in our difficulty in being alone with ourselves. To sit still without talking, smoking, reading, drinking is impossible for most people. They become nervous and fidgety and must do something with their mouth or their hands. Smoking is one of the symptoms of this lack of concentration. It occupies hand, mouth, eye, and nose. A third factor is patience. Again, anyone who ever tried to master an art knows that patience is necessary if you want to achieve anything. If one is after quick results, one never learns an art. Yet for modern man, patience is as difficult to practice as discipline and concentration. Our whole industrial system fosters exactly the opposite, quickness. All our machines are designed for quickness. The car and the airplane bring us quickly to our destination, and the quicker, the better. The machine which can produce the same quantity in half the time is twice as good as the older and slower one. Of course, there are important economic reasons for this. But, as in so many other aspects, human values have become determined by economic values. What is good for machines must be good for man. So goes the logic. Modern man thinks he loses something, time, when he does not do things quickly. Yet he does not know what to do with the time he gains, except to kill it. Eventually, a condition of learning any art is a supreme concern with the mastery of the art. If the art is not something of supreme importance, the apprentice will never learn it. He will remain, at best, a good dilettante, but will never become a master. This condition is as necessary for the art of loving as for any other art. One more point must be made with regard to the general conditions of learning an art. One must learn a great number of other and often seemingly disconnected things before one starts with the art itself. An apprentice in carpentry begins by learning how to plane wood. An apprentice in the art of piano playing begins by practicing scales. 
with regard to the art of loving, this means that anyone who aspires to become a master in this art must begin by practicing discipline, concentration, and patience throughout every phase of his life. How does one practice discipline? To get up at a regular hour, to devote a regular amount of time during the day to activities such as meditating, reading, listening to music, walking, not to indulge, at least not beyond a certain minimum, in escapist activities like mystery stories and movies, not to overeat or overdrink are some obvious and rudimentary rules. It is essential that discipline should not be practiced like a rule imposed on oneself from the outside, but that it becomes an expression of one's own will, that it is felt as pleasant, and that one slowly accustoms oneself to a kind of behavior which one would eventually miss if one stopped practicing it. It is one of the unfortunate aspects of our Western concept of discipline, as of every virtue, that its practice is supposed to be somewhat painful, and only if it is painful can it be good. The East has recognized long ago that that which is good for man, for his body and for his soul, must also be agreeable, even though at the beginning some resistance must be overcome. Concentration is by far more difficult to practice in our culture, in which everything seems to act against the ability to concentrate. The most important step in learning concentration is to learn to be alone with oneself without reading, listening to the radio, smoking, or drinking. Indeed, to be able to concentrate means to be able to be alone with oneself, and this ability is precisely a condition for the ability to love. Anyone who tries to be alone with himself will discover how difficult it is. He will begin to feel restless, fidgety, or even to sense considerable anxiety. He will be prone to rationalize his unwillingness to go on with this practice by thinking that it has no value, is just silly, that it takes too much time, and so on, and so on. It would be helpful to practice a few very simple exercises, as, for instance, to sit in a relaxed position, neither slouching nor rigid, to close one's eyes, and to try to see a white screen in front of one's eyes, and to try and remove all interfering pictures and thoughts, then to try to follow one's breathing. Not to think about it, nor force it, but to follow it, and in doing so, to sense it. Furthermore, to try to have a sense of I. I equals myself, as the center of my powers, as the creator of my world. One should at least do such a concentration exercise every morning for 20 minutes, and if possible longer, and every evening before going to bed. Besides such exercises, one must learn to be concentrated in everything one does in listening to music, in reading a book, in talking to a person, in seeing a view. The activity at this very moment must be the only thing that matters, to which one is fully given. If one is concentrated, it matters little what one is doing. The important as well as the unimportant things assume a new dimension of reality, because they have one's full attention. To learn concentration requires avoiding, as far as possible, trivial conversation. 
If two people talk about the growth of a tree they both know, or about the taste of the bread they have just eaten together, or about a common experience in their job, such conversation can be relevant, provided they experience what they are talking about and do not deal with it in an abstractified way. On the other hand, a conversation can deal with matters of politics or religion and yet be trivial. This happens when the two people talk in clichés, when their hearts are not in what they are saying. I should add here that just as it is important to avoid trivial conversation, it is important to avoid bad company. By bad company, I do not refer only to people who are vicious and destructive. One should avoid their company because their orbit is poisonous and depressing. I mean also the company of zombies, of people whose soul is dead, although their body is alive, of people whose thoughts and conversation are trivial, who chatter instead of talk, and who assert cliché opinions instead of thinking. However, it is not always possible to avoid the company of such people, nor even necessary. If one does not react in the expected way, that is, in clichés and trivialities, but directly and humanly, one will often find that such people change their behavior, often helped by the surprise affected by the shock of the unexpected. To be concentrated in relation to others means primarily to be able to listen. Most people listen to others, or even give advice, without really listening. They do not take the other person's talk seriously. They do not take their own answers seriously either. As a result, the talk makes them tired. They are under the illusion that they would be even more tired if they listened with concentration. But the opposite is true. Any activity, if done in a concentrated fashion, makes one more awake, although afterward natural and beneficial tiredness sets in, while every unconcentrated activity makes one sleepy, while at the same time it makes it difficult to fall asleep at the end of a day. To be concentrated means to live fully in the present, in the here and now, and not to think of the next thing to be done while I am doing something right now. Needless to say that concentration must be practiced most of all by people who love each other. They must learn to be close to each other while running away in the many ways in which this is customarily done. The beginning of the practice of concentration will be difficult. It will appear as if one could never achieve the aim. That this implies the necessity to have patience need hardly be said. If one does not know that everything has its time and wants to force things, then indeed one will never succeed in becoming concentrated, nor in the art of loving. One cannot learn to concentrate without becoming sensitive to oneself. Now what does this mean? Should one think about oneself all of the time, analyze oneself, or what? If we were to talk about being sensitive to a machine, there would be little difficulty in explaining what is meant. Anybody, for instance, who drives a car is sensitive to it. Even a small, unaccustomed noise is noticed, and so is a small change in the pickup of the motor. In the same way, the driver is sensitive to changes on the road surface, to movements of the cars before and behind him. Yet he is not thinking about all these factors. His mind is in a state of relaxed alertness, open to all relevant changes in the situation on which he is concentrated, 
that of driving his car safely. If we look at the situation of being sensitive to another human being, we find the most obvious example in the sensitiveness and responsiveness of a mother to her baby. She notices certain bodily changes, demands, anxieties, before they are overtly expressed. She wakes up because of her child's crying, where another and much louder sound would not waken her. All this means that she is sensitive to the manifestations of the child's life. She is not anxious or worried, but in a state of alert equilibrium, receptive to any significant communication coming from the child. In the same way, one can be sensitive toward oneself. One is aware, for instance, of a sense of tiredness in depression. And instead of giving in to it and supporting it by depressive thoughts, which are always at hand, one asks oneself, what happened? Why am I depressed? The same is done by noticing when one is irritated or angry or tending to daydreaming or other escape activities. In each of these instances, the important thing is to be aware of them and not rationalize them in the thousand and one ways in which this can be done. Furthermore, to be open to our own inner voice, which will tell us, often rather immediately, why we are anxious, depressed, irritated. The average person has a sensitivity toward his bodily processes. He notices changes or even small amounts of pain. This kind of bodily sensitivity is relatively easy to experience because most persons have an image of how it feels to be well. The same sensitivity toward one's mental processes is much more difficult because many people have never known a person who functions optimally. They take the psychic functioning of their parents and relatives or of the social group they have been born into as the norm. And as long as they do not differ from these, they feel normal and without interest in observing anything. There are many people, for instance, who have never seen a loving person or a person with integrity or courage or concentration. It is quite obvious that in order to be sensitive to oneself, one has to have an image of complete healthy human functioning. And how is one to acquire such an experience if one has not had it in one's own childhood or later in life? There is certainly no simple answer to this question, but the question points to one very critical factor in our educational system. While we teach knowledge, we are losing that teaching which is the most important one for human development, the teaching which can only be given by the simple presence of a mature, loving person. In contemporary capitalistic society, and the same holds true for Russian communism, the men suggested for admiration and emulation are everything but bearers of significant spiritual qualities. Those are essentially in the public eye who give the average man a sense of vicarious satisfaction. Movie stars, important business or government figures, these are the models for emulation. Their main qualification for this function is often that they have succeeded in making the news. If we should not succeed in keeping alive a vision of mature life, then indeed we are confronted with the probability that our whole cultural tradition will break down. This tradition is not primarily based on the transmission of certain kinds of knowledge, but of certain kinds of human traits. If the coming generations will not see these traits anymore, 
a 5,000-year-old culture will break down even if its knowledge is transmitted and further developed. Thus far, I have discussed what is needed for the practice of any art. Now I shall discuss those qualities which are of specific significance for the ability to love. According to what I said about the nature of love, the main condition for the achievement of love is the overcoming of one's narcissism. The narcissistic orientation is one in which one experiences as real only that which exists within oneself, while the phenomena in the outside world have no reality in themselves, but are experienced only from the viewpoint of their being useful or dangerous to one. The opposite pole to narcissism is objectivity. It is the faculty to see people and things as they are, objectively, and to be able to separate this objective picture from a picture which is formed by one's desires and fears. All forms of psychosis show the inability to be objective to an extreme degree. For the insane person, the only reality that exists is that within him, that of his fears and desires. He sees the world outside as symbols of his inner world, as his creation. All of us do the same when we dream. In the dream, we produce events, we stage dramas, which are the expression of our wishes and fears, although sometimes also of our insights and judgment. And while we are asleep, we are convinced that the product of our dreams is as real as the reality which we perceive in our waking state. All of us have an unobjective view of the world, one which is distorted by our narcissistic orientation. A woman, for instance, calls up the doctor, saying she wants to come to his office that same afternoon. The doctor answers that he is not free this same afternoon, but that he can see her the next day. Her answer is, but doctor, I live only five minutes from your office. She cannot understand his explanation that it does not save him time that for her the distance is so short. She experiences the situation narcissistically. Since she saves time, he saves time. The only reality to her is she herself. How many parents experience the child's reactions in terms of his being obedient, of giving them pleasure, of being a credit to them, and so forth, instead of perceiving or even being interested in what the child feels for and by himself? How many husbands have a picture of their wives as being domineering because their own attachment to mother makes them interpret any demand as a restriction of their freedom? How many wives think their husbands are ineffective or stupid because they do not live up to a fantasy picture of a shining night which they might have built up as children? The lack of objectivity as far as foreign nations are concerned is notorious. From one day to another, another nation is made out to be utterly depraved and fiendish, while one's own nation stands for everything that is good and noble. Every action of the enemy is judged by one standard, every action of oneself by another. Even good deeds by the enemy are considered a sign of particular devilishness, meant to deceive us and the world, while our bad deeds are necessary and justified by our noble goals which they serve. The faculty to think objectively is reason. The emotional attitude behind reason is that of humility. To be objective 
to use one's reason is possible only if one has achieved an attitude of humility, if one has emerged from the dreams of omniscience and omnipotence which one has as a child. If I want to learn the art of loving, I must strive for the objectivity in every situation and become sensitive to the situations where I am not objective. I must try to see the difference between my picture of a person and his behavior as it is narcissistically distorted and the person's reality as it exists regardless of my interests, needs, and fears. To have acquired the capacity for objectivity and reason is half the road to achieving the art of loving, but it must be acquired with regard to everybody with whom one comes in contact. If someone would want to reserve his objectivity for the loved person and think he can dispense with it in his relationship to the rest of the world, he will soon discover that he fails both here and there. The ability to love depends on one's capacity to emerge from narcissism and from the incestuous fixation to mother and clan. It depends on our capacity to grow, to develop a productive orientation in our relationship toward the world and ourselves. This process of emergence, of birth, of waking up, requires one quality as a necessary condition, faith. The practice of the art of loving requires the practice of faith. What is faith? Even to begin to understand the problem of faith, one must differentiate between rational and irrational faith. By irrational faith, I understand the belief which is based on one's submission to irrational authority. In contrast, rational faith is a conviction which is rooted in one's own experience of thought or feeling. Rational faith is not primarily belief in something, but the quality of certainty and firmness which our convictions have. The process of creative thinking in any field of human endeavor often starts with what may be called a rational vision, itself a result of considerable previous study, reflective thinking, and observation. When the scientist succeeds in gathering enough data or in working out a mathematical formulation to make his original vision highly plausible, he may be said to have arrived at a tentative hypothesis. A careful analysis of the hypothesis in order to discern its implications and the amassing of data which support it lead to a more adequate hypothesis and eventually perhaps to its inclusion in a wide-ranging theory. At every step from the conception of a rational vision to the formulation of a theory, faith is necessary. Faith in the vision as a rationally valid aim to pursue, faith in the hypothesis as a likely and plausible proposition, and faith in the final theory, at least until a general consensus about its validity has been reached. This faith is rooted in one's own experience, in the confidence in one's power of thought, observation, and judgment, while a rational faith is the acceptance of something as true only because an authority or the majority say so. Rational faith is rooted in an independent conviction based upon one's own productive observing and thinking in spite of the majority's opinion. In the sphere of human relations, Faith is an indispensable quality of any significant friendship or love. 
Having faith in another person means to be certain of the reliability and unchangeability of his fundamental attitudes, of the core of his personality, of his love. By this, I do not mean that a person may not change his opinions, but that his basic motivations remain the same. That, for instance, his respect for life and human dignity is part of himself, not subject to change. In the same sense, we have faith in ourselves. We are aware of the existence of a self, of a core in our personality, which is unchangeable and which persists throughout our life in spite of varying circumstances and regardless of certain changes in opinions and feelings. It is this core which is the reality behind the word I, and on which our conviction of our own identity is based. Unless we have faith in the persistence of our self, our feeling of identity is threatened and we become dependent on other people whose approval then becomes the basis for our feeling of identity. Only the person who has faith in himself is able to be faithful to others because only he can be sure that he will be the same at a future time as he is today and therefore that he will feel and act as he now expects to. Another meaning of having faith in a person refers to the faith we have in the potentialities of others. The most rudimentary form in which this faith exists is the faith which the mother has toward her newborn baby, that it will live, grow, walk, and talk. However, the development of the child in this respect occurs with such regularity that the expectation of it does not seem to require faith. It is different with those potentialities which can fail to develop. The child's potentialities to love, to be happy, to use his reason, and more specific potentialities like artistic gifts. They are the seeds which grow and become manifest if the proper conditions for their development are given, and they can be stifled if these are absent. One of the most important of these conditions is that the significant person in a child's life have faith in these potentialities. The faith in others has its culmination in faith in mankind. Like the faith in the child, it is based on the idea that the potentialities of man are such that given the proper conditions, he will be capable of building a social order governed by the principles of equality, justice, and love. Man has not yet achieved the building of such an order, and therefore the conviction that he can do so requires faith. But like all rational faith, this too is not wishful thinking, but based upon the evidence of the past achievements of the human race and on the inner experience of each individual, on his own experience of reason and love. The basis of rational faith is productiveness. To live by our faith means to live productively. It follows that the belief in power, in the sense of domination, and the use of power are the reverse of faith. There is no rational faith in power. There is submission to it, or on the other part of those who have it, the wish to keep it. While to many power seems to be the most real of all things, the history of man has proved it to be the most unstable of all human achievements. Because of the fact that faith and power are mutually exclusive, 
all religions and political systems which originally are built on rational faith become corrupt and eventually lose what strength they have if they rely on power or ally themselves with it. To have faith requires courage, the ability to take a risk, the readiness even to accept pain and disappointment. Whoever insists on safety and security as primary conditions of life cannot have faith. To be loved and to love need courage, the courage to judge certain values as of ultimate concern, and to take the jump and stake everything on these values. Is there anything to be practiced about faith and courage? Indeed, faith can be practiced at every moment. It takes faith to bring up a child. It takes faith to fall asleep. It takes faith to begin any work. But we all are accustomed to having this kind of faith, to stick to one's judgment about a person even if public opinion or some unforeseen facts seem to invalidate it, to stick to one's convictions even though they are unpopular. All this requires faith and courage. To take the difficulties, setbacks, and sorrows of life as a challenge, which to overcome makes us stronger, rather than as unjust punishment which should not happen to us, requires faith and courage. The practice of faith and courage begins with the small details of daily life. The first step is to notice where and when one loses faith. To look through the rationalizations which are used to cover up this loss of faith. To recognize where one acts in a cowardly way, and again, how one rationalizes it. To recognize how every betrayal of faith weakens one, and how increased weakness leads to new betrayal, and so on, in a vicious circle. Then one will also recognize that while one is consciously afraid of not being loved, the real, though usually unconscious fear, is that of loving. To love means to commit oneself without guarantee, to give oneself completely in the hope that our love will produce a love in the loved person. Love is an act of faith, and whoever is of little faith is also of little love. One attitude is basic for the practice of love, activity. I have said before that by activity is not meant doing something, but an inner activity, the productive use of one's powers. Love is an activity. If I love, I am in a constant state of active concern with the loved person, but not only with him or her. For I shall become incapable of relating myself actively to the loved person if I am lazy, if I am not in a constant state of awareness, alertness, activity. Sleep is the only proper situation for inactivity. The state of awakeness is one in which laziness should have no place. The paradoxical situation with a vast number of people today is that they are half asleep when awake and half awake when asleep or when they want to sleep. To be fully awake is the condition for not being bored or being boring. And indeed, not to be bored or boring is one of the main conditions for loving. To be active in thought feelings with one's eyes and ears throughout the day to avoid inner laziness, be it in the form of being receptive, hoarding, or plain wasting one's time, is an indispensable condition for the practice of the art of loving. 
The capacity to love demands a state of intensity, awakeness, enhanced vitality, which can only be the result of a productive and active orientation in many other spheres of life. If one is not productive in other spheres, one is not productive in love either. The discussion of the art of loving cannot be restricted to the personal realm alone. It is inseparably connected with the social realm. For if to love means to have a loving attitude toward everybody, if love is a character trait, it must necessarily exist in one's relationship not only with one's family and friends, but toward those with whom one is in contact through one's work, business, profession. Here, however, an important question arises. Since our whole social and economic organization is based on each one seeking his own advantage, since it is governed by the principle of egotism tempered only by the ethical principle of fairness, how can one do business? How can one act within the frame of existing society and at the same time practice love? Does the latter not imply giving up all one's secular concerns and sharing the life of the poorest? Indeed, there are those who claim that only a martyr or a mad person can love in the world of today and that all discussion of love is nothing but preaching. I am of the conviction that the answer of the absolute incompatibility of love and normal life is correct only in an abstract sense. The principle underlying capitalistic society and the principle of love are incompatible. But modern society, seen concretely, is a complex phenomenon. A salesman of a useless commodity, for instance, cannot function economically without lying. A skilled worker, a chemist, or a physician can. Similarly, a farmer, a worker, a teacher, and many a type of businessman can try to practice love without ceasing to function economically. Even if one recognizes the principle of capitalism as being incompatible with the principle of love, one must admit that capitalism is in itself a complex and constantly changing structure which still permits of a good deal of nonconformity and of personal latitude. In saying this, however, I do not wish to imply that we can expect the present social system to continue indefinitely, and at the same time to hope for the realization of the ideal of love for one's brother. People capable of love under the present system are necessarily the exceptions. Love is by necessity a marginal phenomenon in present-day Western society. Not so much because many occupations would not permit of a loving attitude, but because the spirit of a production-centered, commodity-greedy society is such that only the nonconformist can defend himself successfully against it. Those who are seriously concerned with love as the only rational answer to the problem of human existence must, then, arrive at the conclusion that important and radical changes in our social structure are necessary if love is to become a social and not a highly individualistic, marginal phenomenon. Our society is run by a managerial bureaucracy, by professional politicians, People are motivated by mass suggestion. Their aim is producing more and consuming more as purposes in themselves. All activities are subordinated to economic goals. Means have become ends. Man 
is an automaton, well-fed, well-clad, but without any ultimate concern for that which is his peculiarly human quality and function. If man is to be able to love, he must be put in his supreme place. The economic machine must serve him rather than he serve it. He must be enabled to share experience, to share work, rather than, at best, share in profits. Society must be organized in such a way that man's social, loving nature is not separated from his social existence, but becomes one with it. If it is true, as I have tried to show, that love is the only sane and satisfactory answer to the problem of human existence, then any society which excludes, relatively, the development of love must, in the long run, perish of its own contradiction with the basic necessities of human nature. Indeed, to speak of love is not preaching, for the simple reason that it means to speak of the ultimate and real need in every human being. That this need has been obscured does not mean that it does not exist. To analyze the nature of love is to discover its general absence today and to criticize the social conditions which are responsible for this absence. To have faith in the possibility of love as a social and not only exceptional individual phenomenon is a rational faith based on the insight into the very nature of man. This is an Audio Editions book on cassette published by the Audio Partners Publishing Corporation, copyright 1993. The original recording was first published in the USA by Cadman, produced by arrangement with Harper Audio, a division of HarperCollins Publishers, Incorporated, all rights reserved. For a complete catalog featuring 800 books on cassette from 60 publishers, please call toll-free 800-231-4261.